Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. We in America love freedom, liberty, self-government, right? So why does it seem that this country is always edging away from liberty? If we cherish liberty so much and really do believe in limited government, why is the size of government larger than it's ever been in our 200-plus years? Are we really doing our best to uphold these principles? Well, our guest today, Dr. Walter E. Williams, a celebrated economist and syndicated columnist, also the author of the brand new book, American Contempt for Liberty. He's here to share with us the important concepts we need to rediscover to put our country back on the right track. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Dr. Williams. So great to have you. And thank you for inviting me. Your position in your latest book is that Americans are willingly surrendering their rights. Why do you think this is? Well, I I think uh, it it stems from a a decline in moral values. Uh, That is, I think that uh, Americans now believe that it's okay for government, whether it's at the federal, state, or local levels, it's okay for government to forcibly use one person to serve the purposes of another. And, and what I mean by that is that uh, there's no tooth fairy or Santa Claus giving the Congress or the state legislators money. The only way that they can give one American citizen one dollar is to first, through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate uh, that dollar from some other American. And so what they're doing, they're using that other American to serve the purposes of, uh, of somebody else. And I just think that that, uh, that is immoral. And, do, and, and when I say the Americans are losing uh, their, their love for liberty, think back, uh, what would Americans do to a president like James Madison, the acknowledged father of our Constitution? In 1794... Congress appropriated $15,000 to help some French refugees. James Madison stood on the floor of the House irate, and he said, and I'm, I'm virtually quoting him uh, exactly, he says, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to spend the money of their constituents for the purposes of benevolence. Now, if you look at the federal budget today, two-thirds or three-quarters of it is for the purposes of benevolence. Now, imagine what the American people would do to a person running for political office making a similar statement like James Madison or another statement made by James Madison that charity is not the legitimate role of government. The American people would run them out of of town on the rail because they have that much contempt for liberty and the ideas of private property. That is, most Americans think that they they won't actually come out and say it, but they think that they have the right to live at the expense of somebody else. And I think that's immoral. And at the same point, at the same time, I believe in helping one's fellow man in need. I believe that to help one's fellow man in need by reaching into one's own pockets is praiseworthy and laudable. 
to help one's fellow man in need by reaching into somebody else's pockets is worthy of condemnation. It's, it's nothing more than theft. That is, if I see somebody laying in the street, you know, let's say an elderly lady laying in the street on a grate in the dead of winter, she's cold, she's hungry, and she needs some medical attention. If I walk to somebody with a gun and I take that person's $200, then having gotten the $200, I go down and help the lady out and buy her some medical attention, food, and shelter, I'd be guilty of theft, wouldn't I? Absolutely. Now, now, no matter what I did with the money, I'd still be guilty of theft. Now, the question is, is there, for, and I believe most Americans would agree with me, but the, the real stickler is, is that is it also theft if Congress takes somebody's money and then helps uh, the lady out? It's still theft. Or, or what if two people agreed that I should take, the, take somebody's money to help this lady out, or a hundred people, or a million people, or three hundred million people agreed, it would still nonetheless be theft. But it would be called democracy in action, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it properly is, and and more and, and a, a more descriptive name, it would just be legalized theft. Legalized that theft. Is, there are two kinds of thefts. If one, if I walk up to you and take your money, that's illegal theft, and I go to jail. But if I get Congress to take your money, well, that's legal theft, and I benefit. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that so many Americans love government, because government will enable them to do things that if they did the thing privately, they go to jail. But government can do things and give them other people's money, and they won't go to jail. So how did we get here, doctor? You know, from, I remember 50 years ago, 40 years ago, I'm not quite that old, but from, from that reading, right, that I've done, the mindset was completely different. Today, it's, it seems like there's a war between the haves and the have-nots, and those that have are targets for the have-nots. You're absolutely right, and I think that, I think there's a lot of demagoguery about the sources of income. And in a free society, a people generate income by serving their fellow man, by doing something that their fellow man likes, pleasing their fellow man. You know, like if, if I mow your lawn and you give me $20, well, that, that's proof that I've served my fellow man. And, and, and when I go down to the grocer and I say, well, look, I would like to have a six-pack of beer and a pound of steak that my fellow man produced, well, the grocer uh, may say to me, well, you're, you're making a claim on what your fellow man, you're asking your fellow man to serve you. Did you serve him? And I say, yes. And he says, prove it. Then I show him this $20. And we kind of think of the $20 as certificates of performance. That is, they serve as proof in a free society that you serve your fellow man. And the better you're able to sell, serve your fellow man, the more money that your fellow man will give you. The reason why Bill Gates is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars is not because he took his fellow man's money. He, he, he produced something that his fellow man liked, like windows and words, and his fellow man reached in his pocket and coughed up three or four hundred dollars for, for, uh, for what uh, Bill Gates uh, produced. And in a free society, that's how people accumulate income and wealth. Now, I'm not talking about crony capitalism where people use government as a means to wealth. That, that's despicable. But when people uh, acquire wealth by serving their fellow man, I think they ought to be honored. They ought to be praised. So how is this whole concept of 
being compensated for serving your fellow man, whether you be Bill Gates or the person that owns a lawn service company, or really the teenager that is mowing somebody's lawn, right? They provide a service and they get compensated for it. How has this whole concept of performance-based compensation been bastardized to where a large segment of our population believes that they're entitled to someone else's compensation? Well, see, that's immoral. That is, and the, the example I gave you by mowing your lawn, serving your fellow man, well, requiring that in order for me to have a claim on what my fellow man produced, say a six-pack of beer and a pound of steak, uh, in a free society, it requires that I serve my fellow man. Now, on the other hand, government can tell me, well, look, you don't have to get out in the hot uh, day and mow that uh, lady's lawn. Uh, you can sit on your butt and watch Oprah we will take what your fellow man produces. You don't have to. You don't have to serve your fellow man. We will just take what he produces and give it to you, uh, provided you vote for us. And so, so I think that clearly the latter is is immoral. And, and keep in mind, you asked the question a while ago, which I did not answer. How do we get this way? We have to recognize that from 1787 until 1930, the federal budget was only three percent of the GDP, except during wartime. Today, the federal budget is over 25% of the GDP. And I think that what explains some of it is that the, the, great, uh, the great Depression that was caused by the federal government, that is, the calamity of the Great Depression, gave people the idea that a government should help them, or government should, uh, should you know, to, to make up for the, the problems that they had. And, and uh, that's, I think that's how it grew. And then we, then we had this great big surge in the 1960s with the Great Society Programs. And so people have become accustomed to thinking that their fellow man owes them something. And part of the tragedy is in our country is that uh, the average person feels that way. Uh, I don't care whether it's Democrats or, or Republicans or conservatives and liberals, they feel that way. But, you know, the, the basic difference between liberal, liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans is that liberals and Democrats, they believe in taking your money and my money and giving it to poor people and cities. The Republicans or conservatives believe in taking your money and my money and give it to failing businesses or to crop subsidies to farmers. Both agree on taking our money, but they just disagree on what they use it for. So what is your political affiliation? If you believe the Democrats and the Republicans both are, you don't have any. Okay, so we're on the we're on the same team. I don't have any either. I totally could not agree with you more. The Democrats and Republicans both believe in taking our money. They just stand on a different platform in terms of reasons for taking away and justifying. Oh, that's that's absolutely right. Now, every American has a duty, a moral duty to pay for the mandated functions of the federal government. And those functions are enumerated in Article One, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. That, you know, things like uh, roads or national defense and, and other public goods and courts and things like that, that each American should pay a share. But no American is obliged to take care of another American. That's the big problem. And it doesn't make any difference whether Republicans or conservatives. You know, suppose I were running for the Senate in the state of Texas, and I go back and forth across the state, and I say, look, I've read the United States Constitution. If you elect me to office, I'm going to live up to my oath, the oath of office to uphold and defend the United States Constitution. Therefore, 
If you elect me office, don't expect for me to bring back billions and billions of dollars in highway construction funds, hmm. aid to higher education, uh, prog- uh, prescription drugs, and all these other programs. Do you think that the citizens of Texas would elect me to office? No. In fact, the more money you bring back to Texas, the more influence you have, and the greater the probability is that you'll be reelected. That's right. And see, see the tragedy of this, the real tragedy is that the people of Texas would be doing absolutely the right thing by not electing me to office. And the reason why... Is that if I don't bring, if if I don't bring back all these goodies for the people of Texas, billions of dollars, it doesn't mean that Texans will pay a lower federal income tax. All that it means is that Oklahoma will get it instead. That is, once legalized theft begins, it pays for everybody to participate, and the people who don't participate, they'll wind up holding the the brown end of the stick. You mentioned that we, as Americans, have an obligation to pay for the mandated functions of federal government, and one being national defense. Constitutionally mandated. Constitutionally mandated. But hasn't the national defense reason gone way too far at this point? Oh yeah, oh, I, I think that yeah, there, there's corruption in the in the national defense. I don't I don't think that we should give the the people who run our defense department uh you know carte blanche that is they do they you know there's too much uh there's been too much adventurism and and a lot of that adventurism is uh, is supplied by the amount of money that they're that they're given and so yes i think i think that that the the constitution requires or or any moral government re- requires the following we should be protected there should be some kind of protection of american citizens against international thugs who want to violate our private property rights. And we should have protection against domestic thugs uh, who want to provide, I mean, to violate our private, our private property rights. But so far as, as trying getting involved in nation building, trying to spread democracy to other places in the world, that's none of our business. So what rights are you referring to? Well, well look, at it, look at it in the following way. The way I think about many issues my initial premise is that I own Walter Williams. I am my private property. You are your private property. Now, if you believe that people own themselves, then there are certain acts that are immoral and there are certain acts that are moral. The reason why murder is immoral is that it violates private property rights. It violates my property or, or rape is immoral. It violates private property, and so is theft. Theft violates private property. So the, the, the role of government should be preventing the uh, violation of people's private property, their, their right to self-ownership. And so, so if you start off with the idea of self-ownership, then I think it easily explains what things are moral and what things are immoral. That is, the right of self-ownership means that, you know, I mean, if you believe in self-ownership, that means that you have the right to protect yourself against people who would violate your property. So that means, well, gee, you should, uh, you know, you, you should have the right to carry, keep, and bear arms. If you own yourself, you have the right to say things, and it, whether they're offensive to others or not. And, and I think that Americans forget the idea is that the, the true test of one's commitment to let's say, a commitment to free speech, doesn't come when you allow people to be free to 
say those things with which you agree. Mm-hmm. The true test of one's commitment to uh, freedom of speech comes when, when people allow others to be free to say those things they find despicable. The same thing with freedom of association. The true test of your commitment to freedom of association comes uh, doesn't come when you permit people to associate way, in ways that you find acceptable, but uh, when you allow people to associate in ways that you find despicable. That is for, you know, to, to have clubs that don't admit women or don't allow blacks or, or restaurants that don't want to serve different people based on, on their race. I mean, that's, I mean, that's despicable uh, association, but nonetheless, uh, if, if a guy owns a restaurant and he doesn't get any money from government, I think it's his right. But on the other hand, if there's a public library that's uh, financed by the public, well, they don't have the right to say, well, we're, they're going to pick and choose who they're going to let in. So, so I think that, that the basic kernel of freedom and what's necessary for liberty needs to be taught to the American people. But I'm all too afraid that even if it were taught to American people, uh, I think that most Americans would find it offensive. And do you think they find it offensive because they don't understand where morality comes from or, or the genesis of the definition of morality in terms of the idea of self-ownership? Because you've got to understand that first, right, in order to understand the logical progression of that argument. Yeah, well, I would hope that it's, uh, it's ignorance and the fact that people don't understand, because if it's, you know, ignorance is curable through, uh, you know, through teaching. But if, if, uh, if people have contempt for the ideas of liberty, you can talk all you want, and they're still going to have contempt. But as I said, ignorance is, is uh, optimistic, and, and I'm worried about whether it's truly ignorance or whether it's contempt. Well... Do you think pure liberty is too radical a concept for most Americans today? Have they been indoctrinated so deeply to think otherwise? Well, I think what what one has to look at uh, throughout mankind's history, the normal state of affairs of mankind is that he's been subject to arbitrary abuse and control by others. That's the standard fare in mankind's history. Now, the idea of liberty that, that was seen in the Western world and also in the United States, that is rare in mankind's history. It is rare for people not to be controlled by others. And so I, I'm all too afraid that a historian writing 100 years from now, 150 years from now, he might say, you know, that there's this very interesting historical curiosity where people uh, were basically free. They, they did not have government interfering in their lives. But it all went back to the normal state of affairs, namely arbitrary abuse and control by others. I think that's the normal thing. And people say to me, sometimes people say to me, well, is there anything that Americans can do? And my response is, and maybe I could be incorrect, and as a matter of fact, I hope I'm incorrect, is I ask people, are the American people as human beings are we any different from the Romans? Or are we any different from the Portuguese, the French, the Spanish, the British? These were great empires of the past, but they went down the tubes. And they essentially went down the tubes for doing exactly the same things that we're doing, bread and circuses. And so it's a good ch- 
chance that, you know, we will uh, share the same fate as other great empires and great people of the past. And again, I think that we have to stress and have to acknowledge the history that freedom or liberty is rare in human existence. It has only existed for a tiny portion of mankind's population and only for a tiny part of man's history. Historians, 200 years from now, they might say, oh, this is a fluke. Is it how we're designed, wired? What, why is that? Well, I think that uh, people have always wanted or have always coveted that which belongs to their neighbor. They've always wanted more than they have, and they want to get it by hook or crook. And I think that one of the great things about the United States was the very fact that we had the framers or, the, or our founding fathers were brilliant people. They knew, they understood history, and they understood mankind. Matter of fact, if you look at some of the statements of our founding fathers, the word democracy was held in contempt by them. Matter of fact, the word democracy is in none of our founding documents. It does not appear in the Declaration of Independence, and it appears nowhere in the Constitution, because the founders saw that democracy was just a, 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 a democracy is just another form of tyranny. And matter of fact, I think uh, it was Madison in Federalist Paper uh, Ten. He said, called it the tyranny of the majority. But what democracy does, or majority rule, it gives an aura of legitimacy to acts that would otherwise be deemed tyranny. Take for example, what we're going to have for our Thanksgiving dinner: uh, turkey or ham. Suppose that were decided through the democratic process, through majority rule. Most people would view that as tyranny. Then no, it's nobody's business whether what I have for Thanksgiving dinner, or or whether uh, it's majority rule or democracy that decides what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear, what you use for entertainment. And so, democracy is just uh, 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 what, what we're what we're seeing in the United States is democracy emerging. And the founders meant for us to be a republic uh, with very, very limited government. And I think that uh, we were uh, limited for quite a while. And then after a while, people found that they could use government to get other people's uh, uh, belongings. So as individuals, what can we do to turn the tide? Well, I don't know what we can do to turn the tide. I mean, and tide is a good example. I don't know what you can do to turn the tides of the ocean. You can't. That's true. <laughs> you know, my daughter and son-in-law, they, you know, they got married about four years ago, and we were chatting, and, and they were asking me about advice, because I've had, you know, I'm old, and I had a reasonably successful life uh, from, you know, and, and one of the great things about our country is the life I've lived. That is, just because you know where a person ended up in life, you can't be sure about where he started. Anyway, I, that's the great thing about America, that there's so much mobility. But I, I was telling my, my son-in-law and daughter what they ought to do is try to get at least fifty or forty or $50,000 in gold and silver coin, not for an investment. And they shouldn't keep it in a safety deposit box. They should hide it somewhere. And, and uh, not for an investment, but for a, a way to get out of our country, out of the, the way to get out of the United States and start over uh, again somewhere else, maybe Australia or New Zealand. The, I mean, the, the, uh, because when things get really rough in the United States uh, with runaway inflation, people losing their homes, and, and all kinds of social chaos, uh, you, you, you'll want to leave just like <laughs> 
just like the the Jews in Austria, they should have left, the, all of them should have left during the 30s when they saw the first signs of Hitler's tyranny. And so I think that it's possible that uh, we could become a, a tyrannical nation. Wow. Well, doctor, I want to respect your time. I would love to have you back on the show because there are so many topics that would love to um, discuss with you and share with our listeners. But again, out of respect for the timetable that you've given us today, we'll go ahead and close. I do want to say that throughout history, personal liberty, free markets, peaceable voluntary exchanges have been roundly denounced by tyrants and often greeted with suspicion by the general public. And unfortunately, it seems Americans today have fallen for schemes to restrict our God-given rights and have become enamored with restrictions on personal liberty and government control. But we can change this if we first change our thinking. And Dr. Williams, you have been a voice, a prolific writer for liberty. And I encourage our listeners to read your works, check out your information online. You're on the faculty at George Mason University. Do you have a website that you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, WalterEWilliams.com. WalterEWilliams.com. We will also post a recording of the show on our website. And I thank you for the work that you do and for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 